All right, everybody. Um, as you can see, and you will soon see, that a start time in the court system does not necessarily mean the exact start time in the court system. Uh, maybe federal court is probably the closest it uh, you get to starting exactly on time. But when you are hurting around now 12 jurors plus six alternates to get them all in the same spot, they'll get better at sitting in their assigned seats when they come out of the jury room. Uh, that takes a little bit of time. It's the first day of trial, uh, you know, as far as first days. Uh, when we're beginning here with the um, jurors being there, uh, it's probably last minute setup. Who knows? There could be a last minute issue, audio, visual. Who knows? Uh, but the reality of it is the court is not going to come out until the clerks tell him that they're ready to go <clears throat> or if there's an issue that they need to address outside the presence of the jury because uh, you just you just never know. Um, something always comes up, but I assure you the court is very conscious of the of the uh, juror's time and they want to make sure everything runs as smooth as possible and to not have the jurors sitting around as much as possible, but there are certain things that are going to happen here. We're only eight minutes behind the schedule from when they said they would uh, begin again, and we're going to have opening statements. Now remember, opening statements are not evidence. This is a roadmap of what both sides believe the evidence is going to show. They are not supposed to make argument. They're supposed to be able to say, the evidence will show. They can't opine. It's not argument. It's a roadmap. The defense does not have to make an opening statement. They can defer their opening statement until they have heard basically the government's case and they can rest and then the defense does that. I don't think I've ever deferred opening statement because I want to get uh, my theory and theme in front of the jury as quickly as possible to make them think, maybe ask questions of uh, the jurors, you know, whether, whether let them start thinking about things uh, when the prosecution starts calling witnesses and then obviously listening to cross-examination. Here in our, in our state, we have juror questions, which means the jurors can ask questions. They still have to be um, relevant. They have to comport to the rules of evidence. So not everything gets in, but uh, it always gives you an opportunity to figure out somewhat where the jurors are going. I do not believe that they uh, have that in uh, South Carolina, so the jurors are not going to be able to ask questions. And um, sometimes you're never surprised. I mean, you know, you have attorneys, they've been working on this case, they've been thinking about it. And then sometimes a juror will ask a great question, whether it's clarifying, but what about this? You know, like, oh, wow. Oh. Everybody looks like, wow, wish we thought of that. Wish we'd ask that. Or I thought I did ask that, but uh, you just uh, never know. Um, that's why I have so much uh, faith and uh, confidence in jurors. I think they really take their jobs very seriously and they want to do the right job, um, which is obviously to hold the government to their burden of proof. And if they meet that burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then they are to convict. If the government fails to prove their case and fails to meet their burden, their solemn oath and obligation is then to say not guilty. And um, like I said, my experience of trying cases for 27, 28 years now is the jurors take their jobs very seriously. They want to get it right. And, um, you know, for most people, I mean, this is 
probably the biggest decision other than maybe, you know, getting married, having kids, buying a house. Uh, this is, you know, it's a big deal. And so they want to get it right uh, because they understand, particularly in a case like this, you know, we're talking about somebody's liberty that will be affected for the remainder of their natural life, uh, more than likely if they, if uh, Mr. Murdoch is convicted. But they are supposed to make their decisions with neither passion nor prejudice. They're simply to look at the facts, apply the facts to the law, and see if it happened. Remember, a jury trial is not about whether somebody is a good person or a bad person. It's simply about whether the acts alleged by the prosecution took place, and that's it. That's it. Um, did it happen? Did it not? Was this the person that committed this crime on this particular date at this particular location or not? Obviously, what the government has to prove here is identity. That is one of the most important things in any criminal case. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Our little loved chart. Um, if you excuse me one second, I'm going to stand up and I'll show out loved. While we're waiting for a little bit of time here, this is all you need to know in any criminal case. This is what you have to show. Um, a little whiteboard. Can't go wrong with a little whiteboard. Hopefully you can see the little whiteboard here. Every case, this is what the prosecution has to prove. The location, right? We know that the homicides in this case took place at the uh, address on Mosul Drive. Uh, there down in, uh, I think, County, uh, South Carolina. Offense, obviously, the charge of first-degree murder. You have to meet those elements. Who, Who's the uh, the victim in this particular case? Obviously, Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Identification. How are they going to prove that it was Alec Murdoch? Not someone to look like him. Not somebody uh, using his identity, but it was actually him. And then they have to prove the date and time. You'll hear throughout the process, they'll ask the uh, detectives normally in the case, uh, this address, was it then and it isn't now in, you know, Collington County, South Carolina? Yes, sir, ma'am, it was or still is. Um, but that's really any case. If you really look at it, that's that's what they have to prove. Location. Was it in the jurisdiction? That actually the crime took place, right? The offense. But there's an actual victim in the case. Have to show that Paul and Maggie were live human beings and now they're gone. Obviously, they get that in through the uh, coroner. Um, identification. The most important part of any case. I'm telling you, this is it right here. This is what this case is all about. I'm not, you're not going to hear the defense say, well, there really wasn't a homicide. No, no, no. They're not going to argue that. They would lose complete credibility. What they're going to say is somebody else did it. And you don't have to be able to show who else did it. That's not the uh, burden of the defense. Remember, the defense never has to prove anything and any suggestion by 
the prosecution that the defense didn't do something, you know, didn't produce evidence to this effect. It's burden shifting. And um, the defense attorney should move for an immediate mistrial. Uh, you, you, the prosecution can never hint, intimate in any way whatsoever that the uh, defense could have done this. The defense could have called this witness. Uh, the defense could have done burden shifting. Can't do it. Can't do it. Usually that comes up in closing argument. Well, they could have called this witness because as the defense, as the defense goes, you can always get up and say, this is the evidence that the prosecution brought you. And the instructions always say you can consider what the evidence that was brought before you and the lack of evidence brought to you. Uh, to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. You can say, well, they brought you this, this, and this. This is why these witnesses aren't credible. And they didn't bring you this, 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 and this. You know, they didn't bring you any DNA. They didn't bring you an eyewitness. They didn't bring you a credible expert witness, right? And you can argue that. But the defense or, or the prosecution then can't get up and say, well, the defense could have done this. The defense is in a better position to know what was going on because he was there. You can't do that. You can't do anything that shifts the burden to the defense, because remember, the defendant never has to prove himself innocent, never has to prove himself not guilty. That burden always remains with the prosecution in this particular way. So something to consider uh, when we are here waiting for the prosecution to uh, begin their opening statements. I think we're still waiting for the court. Um, you know, we seated a jury. <laughs> And if you listen to the jury selection, obviously there were many, 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 many opportunities for somebody to say, this is not the right case for me. I can't be fair and impartial. I know somebody, whatever reason. And then some people always think, well, I didn't really think I was going to get selected. There were so many other people in the room. This, this must be a mistake. Oh, by the way, did I mention I have this trip plan that's going to happen? And uh, so that I forgot to tell you about that, you know, you know just like, well, you didn't tell us. Uh, sorry, have a seat. And so that's always kind of the moment where people, all of a sudden it gets real. Uh, you know, they call their family. Hey, I can't tell you what case I'm on, but I'm on jury duty. In this case, I'm sure everybody knows what case they were selected for. And then suddenly, oh, the boss has a great big work emergency that only you can handle, juror number 22. And so they may bring that up, but that's why you have alternates. But at this point, it is probably a little too late. So who knows what's going on? Um, obviously, they're not conducting any court business because we would be able to, to be there. This judge uh, doesn't appear to do a lot of stuff in chambers, if at all, uh, which is always good uh, for us. And so... Okay, I think I, I think that's one of the judge's staff that kind of keeps uh, poking her head in the screen there every now and then. But that usually means the staff is doing something to get everything ready uh, for the, uh, the, the court there. And, you know, some staff um, in, do various things. Some staff do nothing other than, you know, say, please rise. I've seen other uh, clerks for judges you know, make sure that they have a uh, fresh cup of coffee, their glass of water at the bench. They really, really uh, take care of their clerks or their judge. And others, uh, they don't. Um, it just depends. Sometimes judges 
are able to, if they're in private practice before they become a judge, they get to take, you know, they get to pick their own staff and, um, you know, uh, particularly in federal court, they can hire anybody they want to be their staff. Usually it's, you know, been their, uh, personal secretary that they had if they were in private practice and, um, they really know what they like. They take care of them. Other judges are like, I got this. Don't, don't worry about it. It, uh, really, really just depends on, um, I'm looking at one of the things here. Um, Somebody asked a question. Hey, Scott, should I get one of those super hat like one, those 20 gallon hats, the big giant brim, and wear it on his show since he's in Colorado? I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, Terry's really freaking like she's holding the other gun. Um, I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, no, not everybody wears uh, big 20 gallon hats in Colorado, um, but you can wear whatever you want, I guess. I don't know. So, um, I mean, here we are. We were surprised the potential jurors were not asked more questions. I was a little surprised as well, but, you know, they did do questionnaires. So, you know, a lot of the questions that the prosecutor and the defense attorney would have had as it relates to facts about the case would have been answered on the questionnaire. So, no need to go back and repeat themselves um, as to those questions. And it also appears as though, Many, many jurors were uh, interviewed in chambers. So once again, not a real big need to do that. Um, I've never tried a case in South Carolina, so I can't specifically say what they did down there. But, you know, it's, it's all the same process. Maybe just a little tweak here and there. They changed a little bit of an order. Uh, but for the most part, it's, you know, get 12 impartial jurors and uh, let's get some alternates as well. And let's get ready to go. And um, as you can see now, we're now 20 minutes behind schedule. We just have to wait for the court to decide uh, when they're ready. Who knows what it could be, but the longer it goes, the more likely they're not going to get to opening statements. It's now 1.20 here, which means it's 3.20, just now changed to 3.21 p.m. there. I don't recall hearing if the judge gave a limit as it relates to the time on the opening statement, uh, but I can't imagine either side would go maybe more than 30, 45 minutes. I mean, I don't think I've ever done an opening statement that went longer than 30 minutes ever. You know, opening statements, hey, here's, here's my theory of the case, ladies and gentlemen. Simple case. My client's been wrongfully accused. Simple case. Self-defense. You know, when it comes to homicide or assault cases, as, as in this one here, I mean, the defense is going to say, wasn't our guy. He's got an alibi. He was off visiting his uh, uh, mother who's suffering from dementia, like every good boy should do to go see their mom. That's what he was doing. He's no killer. That's just, that's their story. That's their theory. That's their theme. Wrongfully accused, wrong guy. That's who they're sticking with. Um, so we will just have to wait and see what evidence. Obviously, you know, we have the indictment in this particular case. And, you know, we'll see what evidence, what else comes out. Uh, we know that old Eddie Smith, the guy that was hired by 
you know, Murdoch to uh, make it look like he had committed or he was a, the victim of a robbery. Turns out maybe it was failed suicide attempt, something along those lines. Uh, didn't do so well on a polygraph test, but that is not coming in. However, let's face it, a lot of these jurors, we don't know what they've heard in the news media. doesn't really matter what they've heard. The only thing that matters for them to be qualified is, is that they are willing to set aside what they've heard and listen to the evidence that comes um, into evidence at the at the uh, uh, trial here at the court and not consider all that other stuff. Because all that other stuff is not admissible. You can't make your decision uh, based upon that at all. So, um, but, you know, you know that, if that bell's been rung, you just never know. You know, sometimes you got to ring the bell. Ding. Oh, I'm sorry, Judge. You sustained that objection? Oh, I'm sorry. But the jury heard it. Just, just saying. All right. Looks like the judge is coming out here, having a seat. Hopefully, the camera will be adjusting to the podium so that we can see the attorneys making their argument. Let's see. Still waiting for some audio. Okay, let's bring the camera down. Let's bring the camera down so we can see everybody there. Let's do this. Come on. Waiting on the audio. Only 24 minutes behind schedule, Judge. Don't worry. We're keeping the jury waiting. So we can hear. Um, we can't hear yet, but I'm assuming the judge is saying, all right, we ready to go? I've been told we're ready to go. And if they haven't done so, they'll have the clerk, the bailiff, bring the jury in. They'll get seated. They'll kind of get comfortable, like, this is their seat, and um, I think it's always funny. The first time, it's a little awkward, but then they kind of line up naturally so that they all kind of they know exactly where their seat is, and they start knowing the order. And, uh, you know, these jurors will probably become pretty good friends. You'd be surprised. You know, they're going to be together for probably at least three weeks. The one thing that they are there for is the one thing that they can't talk about. So when they're in breaks and they show up early uh, and over the lunch hour, you will see when you're there in the courtroom that they kind of form certain bonds, certain groups will go to lunch together. Um, I've heard of jurors having reunion parties uh, because they've got to be uh, so close. They spend uh, time together there. It's, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, they're going to spend a lot of time together let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, when you got to sit around and make small chat, you know, there's gonna be some people that are like, you know, they're not there. They're going to read their books. And like I said, the one thing that is that brings them all together is the one thing they can't talk about, which is, um, always ironic, but you know, they can't talk about the case. They can't discuss the case until all the evidence is in and that all the jurors are together. So, you, you know, like I said, we'll just have to wait and see. We're waiting for the court to lower the camera, bring the jury in, and see what the heck is going to take place. Skyline says, uh, do we expect them to be able to use any of the financial crimes as motives? Uh, there were some outstanding motions about that. Um, 
I mean, that's clearly the prosecution's theory of prosecution, that there were these financial issues going on. They may not be able to get into all of them, but generally say that he was in financial straits. But the defense apparently has some sort of witness to say, hey, Alec Murdoch had plenty of money. He was never in financial straits. That's what we were able to glean from some of the things uh, that were discussed over the last couple of days during some uh, motions issues that were resolved during the breaks in the uh, jury issues. Um, really wish I was there to see what the holdup is. Just have to wait and see. If anyone's got a direct line to the judge, now would be a good time to say, hey, crime talk is waiting here, ladies and gentlemen. Crime talk is waiting. Just kidding. Not asking anybody to do anything like that. Just It was a joke. Sometimes people take things very literally. They can't understand my sarcasm, my humor. Besides, it can be perceived as uh, being very serious. Not. But the clock is ticking. It's now 3.30 there. This could get to the point where, um, depending on how much time the court gives them, I mean, the court still, um, they didn't do it before. I mean, they swore the jury in, but they didn't go through all of the, you know, you've now been selected, you can listen to the evidence, there's all these parts to the trial, you know, seating of the jury, opening, closing, presentation of evidence. The defense may call somebody if they choose to, but they don't have to. Then closing arguments and then the reading of the instructions back, and the deliberations. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. What I All right. say now is intended Come on, just to need some sound in the courtroom. Introduction to this trial. Some sound in the courtroom. Uh, these remarks are not a charge on the law. Uh, I will instruct you on the law. Waiting on the sound in, in the detail courtroom. At the end of the trial before you retire to consider your verdict. But this is an explanation of the procedure that we will follow right. in this trial so that you All may right. better understand what's happening. Let the good judge the know the sound. The defendant oh. is charged I'm sure somebody will let them know that. Murder and two counts murder of possession we can of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. The elements of which will be explained to you later he has they can hear the judge. Not guilty to these charge, they can hear charges. The He's presumed to be not guilty of these charges. He cannot be found guilty unless the state presents evidence which convinces you, the jury, of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The charge is simply the documents by which the case comes into court. Your purpose as jurors will be to decide the facts of this case. And out of all the people who were summoned to come here for jury duty, out of all the people who live here in Colleton County, out of all the people who live here in the state of South Carolina or any place else, only the 12 of you who will deliberate can decide the facts of this case. And you'll determine the facts of this case from the testimony, which will come from this witness stand, together with any exhibits which is made a part of the record or any stipulations entered into by counsel. It is especially important that you perform your duty 
diligently and conscientiously and in conformity with the oath that you took, because ordinarily there is no way to correct an erroneous determination of facts by a jury. Now, just as only you can determine the facts of this case, as the presiding judge, I am the judge of the law. You must accept as correct the law as I stated to you, then deliberate and decide. I cannot tell you what the facts are. You cannot disagree with me as to what the law is. And even if you disagree, you must follow the law as I stated to you. You take the facts as you find them to be, the laws I give it to you, you deliberate and you decide the case. Until I tell you that it's time to do so, you cannot discuss the case with anyone, including your fellow jurors. You cannot discuss the case with family, friends, or, or anyone else. The attorneys, the attorneys in the case, you cannot discuss it with them or any parties or anyone else uh, that might be connected with the case. Should you discover that a fellow juror is violating that oath and that order, you are to bring that to my attention. It's also it's vital that you do not uh, seek information outside of the courtroom during the case. That means that you're not to uh, search internet websites, uh, watch television reports, news reports, any other form of social media accounts of the case, because you are sworn to uh, decide this case based on the facts as you determine them to be, uh, based on evidence presented in the case, as well as the law as I give it to you. Now, later in the process, uh, I will appoint one of you to serve as the foreperson of the jury. And that person will have the responsibility of serving as the spokesperson for the jury. That person will have the responsibility of presiding over the jury deliberations. And that person will have the responsibility of completing the verdict form representing the unanimous verdict of the jury. In just a moment, the Attorney General will make an opening statement in which he will explain the uh, issues as he sees it or as the Attorney General sees it. Uh, following that, the Defense Counsel will have that same opportunity. Then we'll begin with the presentation of testimony from witnesses. I look forward to working with you on this case and to uh, keep the case moving as, as, as uh, reasonable as we can keep it moving, uh, but we will not um, rush, um, but take the time necessary to have this case fully presented to you. We'll now proceed to opening statements by the state. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. On the evening of June 7th, 2021, at the defendant's property off Moselle Road in Colleton County, his son Paul Murdoch 
was standing in a small feed room in some kennels they had on the property. About 8.50 p.m., and the defendant over there, Alec Murdoch, took a 12-shade shotgun and shot him in the shoulder, in the chest and the shoulder, with buckshot. And the evidence is going to show it was a million-to-one shot. He could have survived that, but after that, another shot went up under his head and did catastrophic damage to his brain and his head. The evidence is going to show that Paul collapsed right outside that feed room. And just moments later, just moments later, he picked up a 300 blackout, which is a type of ammunition, but an AR-style rifle. And the evidence is going to show that the family had multiple weapons throughout the property, picked up that 300 blackout rifle and opened fire on his wife, Maggie, just feet away near some sheds that used to be a hangar. Pow, pow. Two shots, abdomen in the leg, and took her down. And after that, there were additional shots, including two shots to the head that, again, did catastrophic damage and killed her instantly. The evidence is going to show that neither Paul nor Maggie had any defensive wounds. Neither one of them had any defensive wounds. As if they didn't see a threat coming from their attacker. And the evidence is also going to show that both Pat, Maggie, and Paul were shot at extremely close range. The evidence is going to show it's called stippling. It's almost like a tattoo that when you get shot very close to a weapon, it leaves marks that the forensic pathologist can see. They were shot at close range and they did not have defensive wounds. And the evidence is going to show that the defendant, Alec Murdoch over there, told anyone who would listen that he was never at those kennels. But the evidence is also going to show from these things that every one of us, most of us carry around in our pocket, that he was there. And he was there just minutes before with Maggie and Paul, just minutes before their cell phones go silent forever and ever. Despite what he told people, I was never at those kennels, the cell phones are going to show otherwise. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Craig Waters. I'm with the Attorney General's Office, and I'll be the lead prosecutor. I introduced myself before. With me is David Fernandez, Savannah Gow, John Metters, Don Zelenka, John Conrad, and Johnny James. A lot of lawyers. This is a big case. It's a very complicated case, and that's why there's so many people working on it. Sitting in, back in the row, we have David Owen, who's the lead investigator. We have Lieutenant Charles Gent, uh, who's one of the agents. Lieutenant, or excuse me, Special Agent Ryan Kelly and Special Agent Peter Rudolfsky. Some of the agents that are working on the case, as well as uh, investigator Isaac Toledo is working on the case as well. There's some of the witnesses that you'll hear from as we go through this case. The judge talked to you a little bit about him being the judge of the law, and he gives you the law. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the legal concepts before I turn back to those facts. Just remember, though, he's the judge of the law, so you take what he says, uh, but I'm going to explain to you some of the legal issues from my perspective before we talk a little bit more about the evidence. And the first thing 
is right before you went to lunch, y'all all took an oath. Everybody in this courtroom who's got involvement in this case takes an oath. You know, attorneys take an oath to become an attorney, take another oath to become a prosecutor, judge takes another oath to become a judge, witnesses take oath on the stands, law enforcement take oaths to become law enforcement, but y'all took an oath as well. And the reason why is that y'all have the most important job in this courtroom. Every one of you raised your hand and said that you would well and truly try this case. And it's the most important job here because like the judge said, he's the judge of the law, but y'all are the judge of the facts. Y'all are gonna listen to what comes from that witness stand and judge those facts. But you also have to be mindful of that oath. That oath requires you to do that hard job, to make that decision to call the strike when you see it. It's the same oath. It's just as important as any other oath. This might be the most important in this courtroom. The judge mentioned reasonable doubt, and he's exactly right. It's the state's burden to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a cornerstone of our country. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's a burden we welcome. It's what we want. It's a system that has been well tested and true, and we take that burden to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I want to remind everyone that the emphasis is on reasonable, okay? It's not any doubt, it is reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt is often defined, and again, listen to the judge how he defines it, but reasonable doubt is a doubt that would cause a reasonable person to hesitate to act, to hesitate to act. And when you hear the evidence coming from this stand about this particular case, I submit to you, you won't hesitate to act. Again, remember the emphasis is on reasonable, reasonable doubt. The judge mentioned the charges, and there are four of them. First indictment accuses Alec Murdoch, to which he's pled not guilty, but it accuses him of murdering Maggie Murdoch. The second indictment accuses him of murdering Paul Murdoch. Third indictment accuses him of possessing a firearm during the commission of a violent crime, that being the murder of Maggie Murdoch. And the last one accuses him of possessing a firearm during the commission of a violent crime, and that being the murder of Paul Murdoch. And what does that mean? What is murder? Well, the judge again is going to instruct you that it is the unlawful killing of another with malice of forethought. And what is malice? Malice is a mental state. That's ultimately going to be for y'all to determine as to what was going through Alec Murdoch's mind when he created and he committed these crimes. What is malice? Malice has often been defined as the intentional doing of a wrongful act without just cause or excuse. It is the intent to inflict an injury under circumstances that the law would presume an evil intent. An evil intent. And when you look at the circumstances of the crime, when you look at what led up to this crime, the evidence is going to show that there was malice aforethought. Aforethought, what does that mean? It means it has to exist that the moment you commit that crime. It doesn't have to be planned. It doesn't have to be planned for any long period of time. It just has to exist a split second before the crime is committed. But when you see this crime and you hear all the circumstances, the evidence is going to show that forethought that existed for a while. It existed for a while in the mind of Alec Murdoch. 
You're also going to hear about circumstantial evidence. And a lot of times people hear, oh, it's just a circumstantial case. But the law says otherwise. The law says that circumstantial evidence is just as good as direct evidence. And what's the difference between the two? Direct evidence is supposedly about the storm out here, from what I'm told. Direct evidence is if it's sunny outside and a witness goes outside and it's sunny and they come in here and they get on that witness stand and because they saw it raining, they sit on the stand and said, I was just outside and I saw it rain. I saw it rain. That's direct evidence. They actually saw it rain. But to give you an example of what circumstantial evidence is, is if the witness goes into a room, a room where all the curtains are drawn, and when they go into that room, it's sunny outside and everything's dry. And while they're in that room, they see it darken behind the shades. They hear thunder. They hear the wind blowing. They hear the sound of raindrops on the roof. And then they open up the door and it's not raining, but everything is wet. There's puddles in the driveway. There's puddles in the street. There's puddles in the yard. There's limbs down all over the ground. And then they come in here and say, yeah, it was raining. Didn't actually see it raining, but those circumstances are beyond any reasonable doubt that it was actually raining. Now, I guess it's possible that somebody could have been standing outside the window and beating a drum to sound like thunder and blowing a fan to make it seem like it was the wind and somehow got enough water to, to coat the entire neighborhood. But that's not reasonable. Everybody understand that distinction? That's not reasonable. Another thing, and this is crucial for what you're going to do in this particular case, is determine credibility or the believability of witnesses. So it would be your job to look at the evidence, the exhibits in the case, but also the witnesses and decide if it's truthful, if you believe it, if you can rely on it. And the judge is going to instruct you uh, that you can believe one witness against many or many witnesses against one. You can believe all the witnesses' testimony or part of any witnesses' testimony. It's up to you, first individually, and then as a product of your deliberations. And what you're required to do there is just to rely on that good old fashioned common sense. Does it all fit together? Is it corroborated? Does it fit with what you would expect? Does it fit with what you expect how real people would act? Does it seem real? Does something seem a little off? Does something seem a little off? You're going to see video statements of Alec Murdoch. You're going to see body-worn camera of him at the scene when law enforcement arrives. And hear what he says. And hear what he says about that night. You're going to hear three recorded statements on video that he gave with law enforcement. And you're going to hear how things progress about what he says and what he, what he says he did that night. Watch those closely. Watch his expressions. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's not saying. Use that common sense. Does this seem right? Or does something seem a little off? Something seem a little off. I mentioned that Maggie was killed with a 300 blackout rifle, an AR style rifle that chambered in 300 blackout ammunition. And you're going to hear evidence that back in Christmas of 2016, Alec Murdoch over there bought two 300 blackout AR style rifles. 
And then not long after that, one of them went missing from Paul's truck. And time went by, and in April of 2018, Alec Murdoch replaced that rifle and bought another one. Three total blackout rifles that they had. One of them went missing years ago, and a replacement was bought. You're going to hear evidence that Paul and his friend were using that replacement gun. They were standing right outside the side door to the gun room of the house, and they were sighting it in, firing down into a field. And the cases were ejecting. The cases are the empty shell from a bullet, and they were ejecting out into the flower bed right there. And then there's a range across the street, and they shot it there, and there's cases ejected there as well. And they were shooting that third replacement gun just weeks prior to the murders. Prior to June 7th, 2021, when Maggie and Paul were murdered, and you're going to hear forensic evidence that the cases that were found in that flower bed and the cases that were found across the street at that range were ejected out of the same weapon that fired all the cases that were around Maggie's dead body, that killed her. It was a family weapon that killed Maggie Murdoch. And you're going to hear evidence that of those three blackouts that Alec Murdoch purchased, when law enforcement arrives at the scene on June 7th, 2021, he can only account for one of them. He can only account for one of them. And that replacement gun is nowhere to be found. You're also going to hear evidence that the type of ammunition the exact brand, the exact model of ammunition that was used to kill Maggie, S&B, 300 blackout ammunition and 147 grain bullets, that exact ammunition, boxes, empty boxes of that ammunition is found all over the property. The very same brand and model of ammunition that was used to kill her is found at multiple locations throughout the property. And you're also going to hear evidence, the same thing about the shotgun shells that killed Paul. That federal double all buckshot unfired rounds were found on the property, as well as Winchester number two turkey loads, the two rounds in the shotgun that killed Paul. Family weapon, same ammunition on the property. You're also going to hear evidence that about a week after the murders, Mr. Al Murdoch's father had died, Mr. Randolph. And about a week after the murders, he shows up early in the morning at his parents' home, where his mother still is in late stage Alzheimer's on Alameda in Hampton. It's uncharacteristic for him to show up early, uncharacteristic for him to show up at all like that. And he comes in and he's carrying something in a blue tarp and he takes it upstairs, and eventually law enforcement finds out about that. And they go upstairs, and they find upstairs, they find a wadded up, very, very large raincoat in a blue color. could look like a tarp. And you're going to hear evidence that it was coated with gunshot residue on the inside. On the inside. 
You're going to hear other evidence of gunshot residue. You're going to hear that there was gunshot residue on Alec at the scene. You're going to hear the evidence that there was gunshot residue on the seatbelt of the car he was driving. You're going to hear evidence that when law enforcement got to the scene, he had gone and gotten a shotgun, Paul's shotgun, and that Maggie's DNA was on that shotgun. You're going to hear other evidence from DNA, gunshot residue, firearms examiners. There's going to be a lot of forensic evidence in this case. And I'm not going to get into every single bit of it right now, but I will say that a key piece of forensic evidence that you're going to hear in this case is the cell phone evidence. Alex's cell phone, Maggie's cell phone, Paul's cell phone. You know, this is all amazing technology that most of us carry around in our pockets. It really allows us to do a lot of things and to get a lot done. But this cell phone keeps track of who we're talking to, who we're calling, who we're texting, whenever we access apps. And every time you do that, there's a record kept in this phone unless it's deleted somehow. And if you're using certain apps, you can even get GPS information where you were when you did that that's stored on these phones. You're going to hear evidence about that. You're going to hear evidence that when you make a call and it pings off the cell towers, the location information can be gathered from that as well. And so it allows an investigation to take this and piece together what someone was doing on a particular day. And not only what they were doing, but who they were interacting with and how they were interacting with them. This is going to be crucial evidence. You're going to hear that, particularly Alec and Paul, but also Maggie, were prolific cell phone users to the point where Paul's friends even had a nickname for him about his cell phone usage. Before I talk more about that, there's three family properties I need to talk about. Okay, the first one I've mentioned is Moselle, Moselle in Colleton County. It's called Moselle, it's off Moselle Road, but everybody refers to it as Moselle. And that property is a large, this is a lot of acres. There's a main house on it, and there's a driveway that goes to that main house, but it used to be an airstrip, and there's an airstrip that goes down, and then down the way, just less than a third of a mile away, just a, a three minute walk, four minute walk, 45 second drive, is the kennels and the shed that used to be a hangar where Paul and Maggie so the main house is just less than a third of a mile away. You can see the kennels from the main house. You can see the main house from the kennels. The family also had a house in Edisto at the beach. And the evidence is going to show that that is where Maggie preferred to stay, particularly in the summer months. She liked the beach. She was not a hunter. She didn't want to be in Moselle. She didn't want to be at the lodge where it was hot and buggy. She liked being in Edison. And then you're also, I've already mentioned, the house in Almeida, which is where his parents' home. On June 7th, 2021, you're going to hear evidence that his father went into the hospital and the prognosis was not good. And in fact, he died a few days later. His mother is in late stage Alzheimer's and that, that house being cared for by a caretaker. You're going to hear from that caretaker. Mr. Waters, yes, sir. Pause for a moment. We'll be at ease in just a moment. Yes, sir, Your Honor. Okay, so they're taking a break here for some reason, a little unusual. 
given that it is um, in the middle of opening statements. But um, if the prosecution's opening statement is any uh, prediction as to how the case is going to go, I think you would agree with me that it's going to get good. Uh, prosecutor that uh, is up there giving his opening statement, uh, very good, knows the facts of his case, very impassioned going through the facts of his case and, you know, lays it out there early and often that on uh, June 7th of 2021 at the uh, Moselle property, uh, Paul was in the kennels at approximately 8.50 p.m. and that he was uh, shot in the chest and then ultimately once again uh, in the head that exposed, well, let's just say it uh, obliterated the old brain housing group there, so to speak. And then they keep talking about this ammunition, but it's a hunting property. So you'd expect, you know, people buy lots of hunting ammunition, ammunition in general. Uh, that's not a surprising thing that it's the same ammunition. I'm sure the defense is going to say, well, you can buy this anywhere, can't you? It's pretty common. Yep. And they'll probably have a number to show how many boxes of that ammo ammunition were sold in the area. And Paul Murdoch or Alec Murdoch didn't buy all of it. And they talked about the injuries to Maggie and how she died. He then talked to the jurors like, hey, we all take oaths. Attorneys take oaths, police officers, judges. You all took an oath to be the trier of fact in this case. The judge is the trier of the law. So you have to abide by his rulings. You have to abide by uh, what they believe is appropriate. It looks like the, looks like one of the attorneys or Maybe somebody went into the chambers, the judge's chambers. Before we get back to his opening statements, can I just tell you, I love old courthouses. Um, I don't know when this courthouse was built. I'm sure I could find it, but it's clearly an old courthouse. It's got you know the old wooden chairs. Uh, it's got the nice dark wood finishes. And, you know, no disrespect to all the new courthouses that have been built over the years, but they suck. They got the cheap laminate. They got these cookie cutter courtrooms. They all look exactly the same. It's just ridiculous. All right, the judge is coming out again. Um, very unusual for a break in the opening statements like that. Very unusual. Maybe the judge had to take a body break. All right, we were talking about the three family properties. Moselle has the main house and kennels slash sheds. The main house has a driveway, but the kennels also have a driveway. And the evidence is going to show that that was actually as commonly used as the main driveway. In fact, the mailbox is by the kennel driveway, driving right past those kennels where Paul and Maggie were I told you that you're going to hear evidence that Maggie did not like being in Moselle as much as she liked Edison, the beach house. But that on June 7th, 2021, she came back to Moselle. And the evidence is going to show that she arrived about 8.15. And the evidence is going to show that from the cell phones that Paul was there at the house, at the main house. And Alec Murdoch himself says that they ate dinner. And the autopsy is going to reflect both Paul and Maggie having similar stomach contents indicating that they recently shared a meal together. About 8.30, about 
15 minutes after they arrived, Paul's phone starts moving towards the kennels. You're going to hear evidence again that the defendant said he was never at those kennels, that he was napping after they ate, and he was at the main house and never went there. You're also going to hear evidence about how much Alec used his own cell phone, and it would be unusual for him to be anywhere without his cell phone. At 8.44 and 55 seconds, Paul recorded a video. He was down in the kennels because he had been talking to a friend of his, and you're going to hear from this friend because his friend's dog was in the kennels and they thought there was something wrong with the tail. And Paul was recording a video of it to send to his friend. 8.44 and 55 seconds. And on that video, and you'll see that video, and you'll hear from witnesses that identify Paul's voice, Maggie's voice, and Alex's voice. Told anyone who would listen, he was never there. At 8.44, in 55 seconds, there's a video. The evidence will show that he was there. He was at the murder scene with the two victims. And more than that, just over three minutes later, 8.49 and one second, Paul's phone locks He never reads another text. He never sends another text. He doesn't answer calls. Three minutes after that video has the defendant at the murder scene with the two victims, Paul's phone goes silent forever. And in fact, another communication comes into the very friend that he was talking to the dog at 8.49 and 35 seconds, just 35 seconds later, and he doesn't answer. Never answers another thing forever now. And on top of that, Maggie's phone locks at 8 49 and 31 seconds around that same time. And she never answers another text, never sends another text, never makes another phone call, never receives another phone call. Three minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Three minutes. After a video shows he's at the scene with the victims and he told everybody he was never there. Never there. Credibility, ladies and gentlemen. Credibility. So what happens after that? Well, you'll hear evidence that Alex's phone was conspicuously, he didn't have a lot of activity from about... 8.09 p.m. until 9.02 p.m. And if he was at the kennels, which the evidence will show, why is his phone not with him? Why is it not showing activity? But you will hear that at 9.02, all of a sudden his phone does start to pick up activity. At 9.02, he uh, calls, uh, he starts moving. At 9.04, he calls Maggie's phone. Doesn't answer He calls his father, Randolph, who's in the hospital. 
Doesn't appear there's an answer there. He calls Maggie again at 9.06. Remember, he's just a third of a mile away. You can see it. At 9.06, she doesn't answer. At 9.06, he turns on his car, his Suburban, and he texts Maggie that he's going, be right back. I'm going to go check on mom. And he doesn't drive down to the kennels, even though that's where the mailbox is. That's a common place to be, even though you can see it. He's called his wife two times and texted her, and she hasn't responded. But he didn't just drive down there and say, hey, I'm heading. You guys want to go? What's up? What's up? Right there. You can see it. He then drives to Alameda. Where his mom is suffering from Alzheimer's and the caretaker is there. And he starts calling people. He's talking to people. It'll be up to you to decide whether or not he's trying to manufacture an alibi. He comes, he gets there to Almeida. You'll hear evidence about whether or not that was usual. You'll hear evidence about how he was acting when he got there. And he's only there for 20 minutes. Because he's back underway at 9.44. And he makes more phone calls on the way back. Calling friends, calling people who will answer. It'll be up to you to decide whether he's trying to create an album. And he gets back to Moselle at 10.01. And he calls 911 at 10.06. Listen to that 911 call. Listen to what he says. Listen to what explanations he may offer. You're going to hear that 911 call, but you're also going to see the body worn camera of the officers who arrived at the scene. The video camera they, they wear so that it records what they're doing. And you're going to see what he did to Maggie and Paul. It's going to be gruesome. There's no other way around. It's what he did. You're going to see crime scene photographs. You're going to see the traumatic injuries that were suffered. You're going to hear from a pathologist, a doctor who will examine the injuries. It's going to be gruesome. There's no other way around. On that 911 call and on the body worn cameras, pay attention to what he says. Look at how he's acting. But he says within a few minutes of each one of those, he says, This is about the boat case. This is about the boat case. And you're going to hear some of what was going on in Alex Murdoch's life leading up to that day. Stuff that happened that very day. Stuff that was leading up. A perfect storm that was gathering. Much like the storms that are coming outside today. Listen for that evidence. Listen to that gathering storm that all came to a head on June 7th, 2021. The day the evidence will show he killed Maggie. 
This has been a long, exhaustive investigation. And it's gonna be a fairly long trial because it's complicated. It's a journey. There's a lot of aspects to this case. There's a lot of factors to this case. But like a lot of things that are complicated, when you start to put them all together, piece them together like a puzzle, all of a sudden the picture emerges and it's really simple. It's really simple. Once we get to the end of that journey, and you have a chance to deliberate, the evidence is going to be such that you're going to reach the inescapable conclusion that Alec murdered Maggie and Paul, that he was the storm, that the storm was coming for them, and the storm arrived on June 7th, 2021, just like the storms that are heading here right now, that they died as a result, beyond any reasonable doubt. Thank you. For the defense. Please support your honor. Yes, Not me. All right, it's not us. The feed went dark just as the defense was getting ready to give their opening statement. It's not us. The feed that we are feeding from the courtroom is blank. Are we back yet? Nope. Here we go. This is Alec Murdoch. And Alec was the loving father of Paul and the loving husband of Maggie. You're not going to hear a single witness say that their relationship, Maggie and Alex's relationship, were anything other than loving. You're going to hear about how they went to a baseball game the weekend before. You're going to hear about their relationship. You're going to see texts and emails indicating a loving relationship. Paul, the apple of his eye. You're going to see a video somewhere between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, the night of the murders, with Paul and Alec riding around looking at some trees they planted. It's a Snapchat that Paul sent to other people because the trees were not planted very well. They were cantilevering over. They're laughing. They're having a good time. That would be about an hour before the attorney general says he swatted them. When I say he swatted them, when they were swatted, and no question, Paul Murdoch was shot twice with buckshot, 12 gauge buckshot, once in the chest. And by the way, that shot would indicate it was in the chest and came out under his arm like somebody that might have been holding up their hands. So when he says no defensive wounds, he perhaps is being held at shotgun. I mean, I can make the same sort of speculation that the attorney general can, because that's all he's doing is speculating. What we do know is 12 gauge, fairly close range 
shot to the chest. He must have been turned because it comes out under his arm. There's wadding, if you're familiar with the shotgun, under his arm. The second shot ended up, and there's going to be some question about the direction of that shot, but ended up entering his skull cavity, and the gases from that shot literally <coughs> exploded his head like a watermelon hit with a sledgehammer. All that was left was the front of his face. Everything else was gone. His brain exploded out of his head, hit the ceiling in the shed, and dropped to his feet. Horrendous, horrible, butchering. So to find Alec Murdoch guilty of murdering his son, you're going to have to accept that within an hour of having a extraordinarily bonding, you can see it in the Snapchat, that he executes him in a brutal fashion. Not believable. Not believable. Now, Maggie is shot running. There are no defensive wounds because she's shot running. And after she falls to the ground and has one bullet uh, that has, has hit her uh, and probably traveled up and hit her brain, she's on the ground. And whoever the perpetrator was walked up, took that AR, and put one in the back of her head. Executed. Executed. Why? This is going to be interesting because we don't know why. He doesn't know why. He's got theories of this and theories of that. But why? Number one. Number two, what was it in that hour between when he's yucking it up with Paul? And, and let me say this to you. His record, he was interviewed. He comes home and finds, there's no question about this. They've got telemetry from his car. He, he left the house at 9.06, returns at 10.01 after seeing his mother who has dementia. Now, remember, that day, his father, who is dying, is taken to the hospital. Mom's home alone with the housekeeper. Perfectly reasonable for him to want to go see her. And later than usual, because his father's not there. He's in the hospital. He dies two days later. His father dies two days later. So the question is, if he leaves at 9.06 and he's back at 10.01, he literally, I mean, and he can account the cars and the cell phone records account for where he was between 9.06 and 10.01. Now, the cell phone records, and you're going to hear this from their own experts, are incomplete. They're incomplete. And we're to submit one of the reasons they're incomplete. And, and by the way, how do they find Maggie's phone? Maggie's phone was thrown out on the side of the road about a quarter of a mile away from, a little bit more, maybe a half a mile, from the Moselle property, thrown out on the side of the road. They found it by using Find My iPhone. And the way they did that, they had to open it or have access. Who gave them the code to open the phone? Now, Murdoch. And it's not destroyed, it's just thrown on the side of the phone. What you're also going to see 
is that Alec Murdoch was calling that phone at 9.06. As he he did call her twice and texted her. And we also know that at 9.06, as he cranks his car, as the cell phone records show that, as the telemetry data from the shows the cell phone linking up with the car, that phone is being thrown on the side of the road almost a half a mile away. Now that is Houdini. That is magic. That is inexplicable. Now, I'm making notes while the Attorney General is talking. But let me tell you what is more believable. The night he comes home and finds his wife and son butchered. And when I say butchered, you're going to see these photographs. When I see them now, after having seen them for the last four or five months, it still shocks me. It still is tough to look at. It still bothers me. And he comes home and finds his son laying in his own blood with his brain laying at his feet, shot to hell. He walks over, he checks to see if there's any life there. Although, I mean, he's seeing his brain laying outside his body. He knows there's nothing there. He goes over and tries to get a pulse out of Maggie. No pulse there. Calls 911. I want you to hear that 911 tape. It is a man hysterical in grief, trying to trying to figure out what's going on. And he tells the 911 operator that he concerned and he drives the up back up to the house. And by the way, you can't see, I've been out there. You can't see the shed where you might see the top of the shed. There are pine trees between the front porch or the or the or the porch on the house and the dog pens. And it's not a third of a mile. Maybe by the way the crow flies, but it takes a little bit longer to drive down there. And this is not unusual for them to communicate by cell phone or text, even when they're all on the same property. It's 1,100 acres. Big property. They hunt it. So what I'm trying to say to you is that the the, the attorney general has given you his view. And again, you can't see the shed. And I'm going to ask the judge at some point during this trial to ask you, the jury, to be able to go to the scene so you can see it. You can understand the proportions. You can understand the details. Because the facts are what matter here. The facts. Let me give you another fact. You're going to hear their witnesses explain the catastrophic injuries to Paul. That his head literally exploded. And whoever shot him with that shotgun was probably no more than three feet away. Maybe, maybe closer. Maybe a little further away. You, his head exploded. You would be covered in blood from head to foot. In blood. They seized his clothes that night. Sweat did. And they test. Well, first of all, you're going to see in the videos from the agent, the officers that arrived that night. There's no blood on him. They didn't find any blood on him. Sweat's testing indicated 12 different places on his shirt and pants. No human blood detected. Period. You'll see pictures, white t-shirt, no blood on it. Those are facts. Those aren't theories. 
Those are facts. And that is, I think, the reason we're here today. When you hear those questions on the videotape on the night, now he's found his wife and son brutally butchered. You can hear on the 911 tape, he is hysterical. He go, comes in and out. It's consistent if any of you have ever, you, you gotta use your human, your experience as part of this deliberation process. Your human experience, you've ever suffered a catastrophic loss of a friend or a family member. It's numbing. It's, it, it, the minute you find out, or if you see them dead, it's numbing. You go into shock. So anything he said that night, is, is in the context of just an hour or two before finding his wife and son butchered. He drove back up to the house while he was on 911 saying, I gotta get a gun, whoever did this might be out there. And he gets a gun. What's fascinating about, about that is, he gets a 12 gauge shotgun and he grabs some shells. They, these people hunt a lot, they have guns everywhere. He grabs some shells, he puts a 16 gauge, I mean, a, a 12 gauge, grabbed a 12 gauge shotgun, put a 12 gauge buckshot in, and then he put a 16 gauge buckshot in. That's how shook up he was. Guy hunted all his life, and he put a shell in that wouldn't, he couldn't fire a 16 gauge from a 12 gauge. <laughs> Makes no sense. He was traumatized. GSR, their own expert at SLED said the amount of particles of GRSR are consistent, consistent with that, him going up and picking that shotgun up. They want to talk about GSR. Again, if you fired a shotgun twice and a rifle uh, six times, you'd be covered in GSR. Those are the facts. That's not his theory. The facts. Now, let's talk a little bit about these ARs. Again, you can testimony. A lot of guns. They got a gun room. You know, I don't live in Calvin County. I live in downtown Columbia. Ain't no gun rooms in downtown Columbia. But apparently if you live on 1,100 acres and you hunt deer, and you hunt uh, whatever they were planting those sunflowers for, uh, quail, I guess, not a big uh, you have a lot of guns. The truth is in 2017, and you'll hear the testimony, that Alec bought two blackouts, one for Paul, and one for Buster, his other son, who's sitting out in the audience. And Paul had one, his stolen. He bought another one for Paul. Now, Paul was very irresponsible with guns, cars. He'd leave guns around. He'd leave guns in cars. He oftentimes left guns down at the, uh, at the dog pens in the feed room. Now, I can't tell you whether he was shot with his own weapon or not, or his mom was shot with his weapon or not. But I can tell you that they weren't shot by hounds. They don't have the guns. There's no way to tell conclusively without having the weapons, what weapons those were fired by. And we'll be talking with the sweat experts about that. The, 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 the sort of overarching issue here is why Murder on June 7th, 2021. Why is it September of 2022 before they charge him? And I will tell you what happened that night. And this is a problem. 
He's being, he's questioned, and the questioning is pretty aggressive. You'll hear it. They're, he's traumatized. They suspect him. He, they show out gun. They suspect him. And the next morning, two people found butchered in here in Colton County, Moselle Road. The police announced, don't worry. There's no danger to y'all. There's nobody out there that could pose a danger to you. Because you see, they decided that night he did it. Without forensics, without cell phones, without any of that. And they've been pounding that square peg in the round hole for the last, well, since, you know, since uh, June of 2021. Resulting in charges in September of 22. And so if he felt, and he did, and you'll hear it, the accusatory fashion he's being interviewed in, he may not have dealt all the facts. But, but by the way, whether he'd been down to the dog pens that night or not, really didn't matter. Really doesn't matter. Because you're going to see cell phone activity that would be, let me put it to you this way. Paul's phone, 850. Maggie's phone, later than that, 854. Clearly, it's still being used. At 906, he's up at the house getting in the car, cranking it up to drive over and see his mom. He says a few hundred yards away, it's a little bit further than that. But the point of the matter is, he would have had to have executed both of them got back up to the house, got the bloody clothes off. And by the way, they seized his clothes from that night. They'd never searched his house for any other clothes that we know of. Although that, that night, he gave permission and they got a search warrant. Go to my house. Go look through everything. Where are the bloody clothes? Where are the bloody clothes? And of course, I would tell you that they've woven this story together because they want everything to be consistent. What's important about that is the judge, and, and by the way, there's no eyewitness. There's no forensics tying him to the murder. When I say forensics, fingerprints, blood, whatever, tying him to anybody that night. The cell phone records would indicate he would have had less than 10 minutes to kill him, get up to the house, get in the car and crank it up. He'd be covered in blood. Now, if they think he was beginning to establish an alibi, there's no evidence of that. The evidence is consistent with him seeing them earlier at the dog pen. And by the way, that that audio they have of him and Maggie, they're, they're talking about one of the dogs killing a chicken. And they were debating whether it was a guinea hen or a chicken. No animosity. Very normal discussion. Paul's very happy. We know that Paul after that, is texting back and forth with a girl about going to the movies. Nobody's down there threatening him. Daddy's not pulling out a shotgun and killing him. For, you know, 10 minutes after that, he's texting this girl. So, big question. One shooter or two? Two guns, shotgun and an AR. And by the way, Maggie has no defensive wounds because she's running. 
What's she running from? And, and could you shoot? Typically, she would be, she had a little shed right, probably 150 feet from the feed room on the other side of a wall. Perhaps she heard the shotgun blast and came around and saw somebody or two people um, and whoever it was opened up. Was there enough time to kill Paul um, and then find the AR and then ambush Maggie? Much more likely there were two people, but again, we don't have to prove anything. Let me sort of share the framework in which you should examine this. You have agreed to follow the law, and here's the law. Here is the law. He didn't do it. He is presumed innocent. As you sit there right now, as you sit there right now, when you look at him, you have to believe he is innocent. He didn't do it. Let me tell you, that's so difficult to do. I get it. And the way, the way, maybe the best way to explain it is this. This morning or yesterday, nobody really reads newspapers anymore. But if you're reading the newspaper, looking at the internet, and you read the police had arrested somebody for some heinous crime, the natural inclination of everybody, all of y'all, is to say, thank God they caught him or her. Thank God that person is in custody. And you did something that's so natural. We all do it. You presume the police had arrested the person that committed the crime. You presumed him or her guilty. That is the natural thing to do. And you know what? That's fine for you to do. Any other day except today. Because you took an oath to follow the law. And the law is he is innocent. He's presumed innocent. That is your presumption. Your mental, he didn't do it. They've got to prove it to me on a reasonable doubt. Now, what's even more difficult, and this isn't a contest, this isn't a game, this isn't who wins and who loses. This is about justice. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the justices of the Supreme Court, once said, jury duty is the highest duty a citizen can perform for their country in peacetime. Because you are protecting us from the state, from the government. That's the foundation of our Constitution, is that the individual has the right to be presumed innocent, has the right to a jury trial, has a right to have his peer, his or her, his or her peers in sitting <clears throat> judgment of them. That's you. And the framework is you presume him innocent, and you don't cannot convict him until the state proves to you beyond a reasonable doubt of his guilt. And a reasonable doubt is the kind of doubt which, which would cause ordinary person to hesitate to act in the more important decisions in their life. Now, what makes this even more complicated is there's no direct evidence. There's no eyewitness. There's no camera. There's no fingerprints. There's no forensics tying him to the crime. None. None. I say that without any fear of contradiction whatsoever. None. 
And what the judge is going to tell you is, to the extent the state relies on circumstantial evidence, the circumstances must be consistent with each other, and when taken together, point conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. If these circumstances merely portrayed the defendant's behavior as suspicious, the proof has failed. Now, this smoke they've created is about suspicion. I mean, if you show up at the scene and you got wife and well, wife especially dead and a guy's got a shotgun, you know, it's pretty logical for the cops to jump to a conclusion. He did it. And the problem is that as they came to that conclusion, they have pounded that square peg in the round hole. And you're going to hear about it. They've ignored some witnesses. Um, I mean, for instance, that blue tarp with the showed up with a blue tarp. That witness who said he showed up with a blue tarp was shown a rain jacket that he talked about. said, that's not it. That's not what he brought here that morning. I mean, that, I talked to her. She says, no, no, no. It, it was a blue tarp. And, and what was I, it? I would object to him testifying now. I would indicate. I would tell you that the, the testimony you're going to hear is inconsistent with the attorney general's representative based on interviews done by people other than me. So what I'm telling you is this, that as you sit here and listen, every time there's a witness that takes that witness stand that the state's put up there, you see, you judge the credibility, whether to believe a witness or not believe a witness, whether to believe one witness against many, many against one. You're going to have to evaluate the testimony you hear from this witness stand with a critical eye. Critical eye. I mean, if you've got uncontested scientific evidence, accept it. I've got no problem with that. The cell phone records you keep talking about, I, I would say you are not necessarily accurate to the extent they rely. I will also tell you that there's going to be a bunch of people and I, I will have been promised something or threatened with something that may take the witness to say something. But I tell you what they're not going to say. They're not going to say they saw him kill him. They're not going to say uh, that they were involved in it. They're not going to say anything uh, that would give you a comfort level in their testimony. Now, all of you have indicated that you will follow the law. And I say this one last time. He didn't do it. He didn't butcher his son and wife. And you need to put in your mind any suggestion that he did. You've been picked because you said you could be fair. You were picked because you just said you could follow the law. You were picked because Alec Murdaugh believes that you can be fair. Now, if during this process over the next however long we're here, I say something or do something, it's most certainly based on my career, I will do, that irritates you or angers you. Sometimes I'm a little rough. Don't hold that against Alec. Hold it against me. 
if I say something that offends you in some way, don't hold that against Alec. Hold it against me. Remember, as you sit there right now, in your mind, he didn't do it. He is innocent. He would require a verdict of not guilty from you. That's the law. That's your oath. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to send you to the jury for room for a break while I discuss scheduling with everyone. Please do not discuss the case. As I mentioned to you earlier, you're not allowed to discuss the case at all until you've heard the entire case and you've heard the instructions of law. So please go to the jury room. Okay, so there we had the opening statements in the Alec Murdoch double homicide trial. And um, we just saw Mr. Harpatulian. I think I probably mispronounce that every time, but Harp, Harp, the defense counsel for Mr. Murdoch. Um, the attorney general got up and basically said, we're going to prove that Alec Murdoch did this uh, based upon the timing. All but concedes it's circumstantial evidence, but the law does not view circumstantial evidence any differently than direct evidence. And he says, we're going to prove this based upon uh, phone records, uh, Paul's phone. Oh, courts, they're, they're sending the jury out. They're going to discuss the schedule. scheduling. Do you have a witness you want to call today? Uh, Your Honor, um, I think as, as we have uh, talked to your law firm, we have a witness, unfortunately, that witness the point of that camera as as he is a first responder that arrived at the scene uh and uh the the uh unfortunately the audio does not appear to be working so i'm informed uh despite efforts of of uh, courtroom staff and even our it folks to try to get it going I, i've been also told that the company that installed this uh, for the uh for the court is not here and they've been able to do this so uh unfortunately given the lateness of the hour which i don't think we could finish him anyway because the video in and of itself is fairly long Done whatever you just said. I will personally come up with a solution to present evidence to this jury, um, but I think uh, you know I don't even think we could really get him done today anyway if we started because even the body worn itself is is uh, you know 20, 30 minutes up long depending on which exhibit we put in. Yeah, and I think this is wise because um, even if we started right now, I don't think he could do the video play, um, and I'm going to ask. And, and I'll tell the attorney general now, we're going to ask him to play the whole video for completeness um, rather than picking out little excerpts. So that may take 45 minutes. Any objection to that? I, we had prepared excerpts. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of law enforcement as they're arriving at the scene. And, you know, I have theories, but if he wants to play the whole thing, I'm fine with that. <laughs> settles that. <laughs> I'd like to tell this judgment. If you bring jury. jury. Okay. If they're ready to come in. Okay. All right. So, so uh, 
little little uh, discussion there. Uh, the judge asked that the prosecution had their first witness ready to go, and like all things uh, technical, apparently the sound doesn't work. So uh, they're going to try in the morning. They're going to excuse the jury until 9.30. The judge is going to bring them back in, give them their evening admonishment not to discuss the case, don't do any independent research, don't talk to anybody. Uh, they can only make their decision based the upon the evidence. Ready to come in. So the jury's coming in. And um, like I said, so the prosecution, their theory is that they're going to prove that Alec Murdoch uh, killed his wife, his son. We're a great example of describing the injuries to Alec Murdoch. Uh, the defense did it basically equating it to uh, smashing a watermelon with a sledgehammer. Uh, give you some idea of what the photographs are going to look like. I don't think they'll actually show those to us, but the jury will get those. And the defense in their opening basically said, hey, these are gruesome, they're bad, and you're not going to like them, but you have to deal with that. And uh, as uh, the defense counsel made you know, quite clear in his opening statement is that Alec Murdoch is presumed innocent, and they basically tried to say that anything that the prosecution said in their opening statement is either wrong or there's a reasonable, plausible explanation for anything uh, that takes place here, that the cell phone records that the prosecution is going to rely upon is not complete. Uh, their GSR evidence is not complete. Um, the videos uh, that they're discussing, you know, are in complete um, contrast to what took place apparently right before the homicides there'd be no reason to do this to her and that obviously there must be two people that did this heinous crime and they are still on the loose and the defense described a little more in depth the injuries apparently the first shotgun to paul went in and out his arm trying to say this consistent with him having his hands up like he's basically orders to put his hands up, maybe being robbed, whatever. And then uh, Maggie is running. So that completely explains the, the fact that there are no defensive rune, wounds. The raincoat or the tarp that the prosecution says that uh, Alec Murdoch allegedly took to his father's residence at some point, they was covered in uh, gunshot resin blood. I can't remember exactly what the prosecution said here real quick without looking at my notes but that uh the defense says oh we talked to him you're gonna you're gonna hear this witness uh, that they're saying uh what they showed him is not what uh i saw him take there that evening so you know once again it's gonna come down to that electronic data not that we're saying commit crime but if you're gonna do it you probably don't want to take the old cell phone um just just saying. Or if you do, at least get yourself a Crime Talk sticker uh, that you can put on the back of your phone and uh, they'll know that you didn't take it there uh, on purpose. You must have been forced to or something along those lines because a good Crime Talk listener, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Good Crime Talk listeners aren't going to commit crime. <laughs> it was a joke. All right. Calm down. Relax before people start saying, Scott, are you telling people? No, I'm not telling anybody to commit crime. It was a joke. Okay. Um, don't crime, don't, don't live stream the crime scene, right? All that data is being collected, even if you, you have no idea of it whatsoever. So, um, you know, 
so it looks like we're still waiting for the judge to bring the jury in, as far as I can tell, unless we don't have any sound again. Others do. I don't know. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll just uh, wait to see if the judge does that, and then we'll sign off, and uh, they'll resume at 9.30 tomorrow morning. The first witness is going to be a first responder, and he's going to walk us through what he or she saw and then explain the body-worn camera. Now, this is something interesting. The defense said, we want the entire video played. Interesting. The defusion clearly is saying, well, we had an excerpt judge because probably a lot of talk going on that wouldn't otherwise be admissible about various theories of things like that taking place, etc. So, obviously, there's something in that video that the defense likes, that they want to come in, that they're saying, hey, this is, and this is what I talk about in trial work. There's certain tactical decisions that you make that appellate people maybe look down the road and say, why did you allow this evidence in? Uh, it's a tactical decision at that point. So there's something there that the defense likes and they want it in. And the prosecutor is like, well, you know, I'm not going to look like the bad guy here. If he wants the whole video, we'll play the whole video. But my guess is it's, it's a bunch of cops on there saying, oh, I bet it had something to do with that boating case. Just something to look out for in the morning. Um, so we'll see here. We do need the, the T-shirt with that quote. Don't cry. Don't live stream the crime scene. Sky, Skyline, my husband is an attorney on his public defender uh office rotation he's about to go nuts <laughs> scott i'm on it if you do perfect um they want to make sure they're telling the police they're wrong let's see here let's think let's see what old sally says they want to make sure they can tell the police they're wrong when they say it was this shovel and it show it was a different shovel it's to prove the fact that the murder that they committed so um, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm telling you, prosecutor did a great job on his opening statement. I, I thought it was very good. I mean, not that he needs to me to critique him. Clearly, he's a very accomplished trial attorney. But the uh, he, he did good. He did good. He, he got the attention right out there. And then old Dick Harpatulian, I think is the way you pronounce the guy's name. Uh, he gets up for the defense. And, you know, he's kind of got that southern gentleman uh, way of talking, it's like listen to your grandfather tell you a story and say, son, you know, I've been around here. I've been the ways of the world and things aren't exactly what they say. And you can't always trust the government because after all, they can't answer the one question. Why? What supposedly happened within this one hour when this Snapchat video took place? And really, it was just a whole rush to judgment. And the evidence that they have really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, who are you going to trust? A wise old Southern gentleman or that slick talking prosecutor that doesn't have any direct evidence and with cell phone data? And I'm not familiar with them big city ways, but I know I like to see it with my own eyes. And they don't have a single person that can come in here and say that old Alec Murdoch did it. There you have it. Um, I think that's the best way to describe it. It was almost like it was a closing uh, statement. 
And at one point, uh, the attorney general objected to the uh, defense attorney, Mr. Harpatulian, to um, his thing saying, I talked to her. I've talked to her, basically personally vouching that what she's going to come in here and say, ladies and gentlemen, she's told me and she's going to come in here under oath and tell you. You can't do that in opening statement. Uh, it was improper. The judge uh, was correct in the uh, sustaining that objection. And, um, uh, the, you know, he, but guess what? So we got to do it again. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to hear, you're going to hear that woman. That's it's different. What, what she, what she said, uh, you know, independent people are going to say that, that, that she didn't say that. So, you know, I, I, I love this. I love this. I love this. I went to, they went to the trial setting within the first day of speedy trial. There was no, you know, uh, let's wave, keep dragging this on. It was, let's go do this. So, it is good stuff. I'm telling you, this is going to be interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, I just, but literally, this is the best stuff ever. I mean, we got a wealthy family accused of killing his own family, a uh, complete fall from grace. I mean, this is what TV stories are made of. This is great stuff. And we've been following it literally from the beginning. And, um, Mark my word, y'all are going to be happy that you took the time to watch this trial. All right, so it doesn't look like the court is going to be coming back. They've excused the jury from what we can tell until 9.30 tomorrow morning, which means we'll be here ready to go at 7.30 Mountain Time, 9.30 Eastern Time, so that uh, we bring you gavel-to-gavel coverage. And I'm going to do my best to be here um, for that. I think I have to go. I have my concierge doctor appointment. I got to draw some blood on me and then I'll be in, uh, you know, for that annual physical. So uh, I'll be in shortly after, but uh, we'll have you up and running. So, all right. I want to thank everybody for watching. We will see you all. Uh, we'll put up a video later today as well. So look out uh, for that as well. Thanks for everyone for joining us last night on our live show, as well as our Patreon show. Appreciate it. So uh, we'll see you tomorrow, bright and early. Have a wonderful day.